Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. It looks like there was a change to LiveView's inner content, which is to be expected as they're figuring out how the internal should work. Previously, you would call inner content as an anonymous function, and now they're bringing in a render inner with an arity of two function. This should bring more efficiency to components that were using inner content before, and it's slated for Phoenix Live View 015. So check out the show notes for a link to that commit for more information. If you're interested in the Elixir Ecosystem 2020 results, on our last show, we interviewed Hugo Barauna, and he shared with us that he was working on the CSV cleanup from those results. And he's finished that and posted it to a GitHub repository where it's uh, more of a database structure and with some sample ways to query the data out. If you want to play with some data analysis, that looks like something fun to jump in with. Some Dashbit libraries, like the Nimble named ones, uh, and hopefully some others out there, uh, sometimes they overstay their time at pre-1.0. Somebody noticed that. Therefore, they're going to make the jump to 1.0. They're going to graduate. Yay! If you see some libraries move to 1.0, uh, you might just be seeing uh, Elixir library authors uh, marking their libraries as stable, which they have been before, you know, pre 1.0, but uh, they just they just stayed too long in, in pre 1.0. So we're just going to mark it as 1.0. If you're one of those library authors, uh, maybe consider doing this for your libraries as well. And finally, the third Elixir Lang case study is up, and this one's Platform as a Service with Elixir at Heroku. So this is a good one to look at. I think it's just nice to have more official resources that we can use when we're being asked to justify Elixir for production projects. So you can check that out in the show notes. That's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Quinn Wilton. Quinn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. So Quinn, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you live? Where do you work? And what kind of problems are you solving? Yeah, so uh, as you know, I'm Quinn. Um, I'm originally from Canada. I grew up in Waterloo, Ontario, actually. I basically spent my entire life there and went to college at University of Waterloo, where I kind of left a wake of half-finished degrees behind me before eventually dropping out and moving to California. I've been here in the Bay Area for seven to eight years now. I'm losing track, but uh, I kind of moved out here for a security startup where I have been for most of my professional career. Uh, The company was named Tinfoil Security. This past year, we were actually acquired by Synopsys. So uh, we're now part of their security suite. And originally, the job was a Ruby position where um, I was writing dynamic analysis tools for scanning web applications for vulnerabilities. But over the past four or five years or so, we've started making a big shift towards doing API security. And as part of that, I convinced everybody to switch to using Elixir for basically all of our new development. So I've been spending a lot of time doing dynamic analysis of REST APIs, GraphQL APIs, and so on, using a big Elixir dynamic analysis tool that we've written. That's really cool. I would love to talk more about the security stuff, which we, I expect we'll get to later in the show. Uh, but so one of the things I, I see you on a lot uh, on Twitter and social media and kind of talking about Elixir things and things that you're excited about. And one of the things I see you talk about a lot is Gleam. And Gleam is one of those topics where I know it's a Beam language like Elixir is to Erlang, but it's not Elixir. And it's a strongly typed language as far as I understand. So I'd love to hear a little bit about 
your relationship to Gleam and Elixir? So like if you're doing Elixir at work, do you see these as competing ideas or are these similar or, or what is that like? Gleam is fascinating to me. I first came across it a few years ago, but I wasn't super involved in the Elixir community back then. These past couple of months, I've started getting more involved and Gleam has really stood out to me as potentially being the future of Beam development. Maybe not on its own, but alongside other tools like Erlang and Elixir. Like you said, it's a statically typed functional language. And more specifically, it uh, uses what's called the Henley-Milner type system. That's the same type system used by languages like Haskell. So uh, really what Gleam represents is kind of a combination of these really cool statically typed ideas that you get in languages like Haskell with the really incredible resilience and fault tolerance and concurrency ideas that Beam brings to kind of the programming community at large. Yeah, so Gleam represents this merging of these static typing ideas that you have from languages like Haskell with the really exciting fault tolerance and resilient principles that the Beam VM gives us. That's something that we've seen a little bit from other languages like Alpaca in the past, but it's not something that's really picked up a ton of steam. But over the past few months, Gleam has really been growing as a project and has started to be used for uh, a lot more apps and libraries and side projects. And it's in a really exciting place right now. There's actually a uh, Y Combinator company named Plummail that is using Gleam as their primary language, and they're developing a web framework named Midas that, in a way, is kind of going to be like the phoenix of Gleam. But uh, I think Gleam is in a really exciting place because it compiles down to Erlang. So it really integrates really well with the rest of the Beam ecosystem, even though it's different from all the other languages in that it's statically typed and so on. It doesn't really exist in an island. You can use it alongside Erlang apps or Elixir apps or Lisp-flavored Erlang or anything like that. And the reason for that is that it compiles down to Erlang. So then you just end up with normal Erlang code that you can integrate into any other project like you would Erlang code or Elixir code and so on. That was kind of the big focus of the ElixirConf talk that I gave a few weeks ago. It was called TypeSafe Live View with Gleam. And really what I did there was investigated how to build a Gleam core for a Phoenix Live View application where I was essentially writing by my business logic in Gleam, where I was able to leverage static typing for domain modeling and documentation and correctness, but then control that using a live view shell, basically, that is responsible for handling user input and rendering and playing sounds and things like that. And really, it allowed me to merge everything that I love about the Beam VM with everything I love about static typing. And I ended up with this very simple and easy to understand Gleam project that was able to be clustered and distributed as a web application and rendered in the browser using LiveView. And honestly, it was one of the most enjoyable programming experiences I've ever had. So you mentioned this the enjoyable experience of having Gleam with LiveView and how that brought a lot of pleasure, it sounds like. I was just wondering, why do you think Elixir devs should care about what is happening with Gleam? Why do you think that they should pay attention to this? Really, what I think it comes down to is the fact that different programming languages encourage different programming methodologies. With the Beam VM and most of the languages on the Beam VM, they encourage the let it crash philosophy. People write their code assuming that everything is correct and just letting it crash whenever something goes wrong. This is incredibly powerful. It's great for fault tolerance, great for distribution. But when you're actually writing low-level logic, it can kind of come back and bite you. 
a lot of the problems that you end up working around with the let it crash model are the same problems that you would like to avoid entirely when you're working on your business logic core. And so where Gleam was really helpful for me was allowing me to divide my application into kind of those two halves. There's that outer boundary, as Bruce Tate likes to call it in a lot of his work, that's responsible for concurrency, parallelism, distribution, workers, supervisors, that sort of thing. And then there's that internal core that is a pure domain model that just represents how your data is transformed in response to business events and business actions and so on. And that's where I really like to uh, pull in something like Gleam, uh, since it allows me to really get the best of both programming worlds within one application without having to reach for any sort of IPC or microservice architecture or anything like that. And I think it really ties into that philosophy that's really kind of endemic within the Beam community of trying to bring as much of your programming as possible into the Beam and not having to rely on outside libraries or languages or applications. So to me, Gleam really just represents one additional way of enabling the Beam to do so much more than it was capable of doing before. That's really interesting. Two points there I kind of want to unpack with you. You mentioned like the business logic and getting that into a different layer, you know, that that's the way it should be architected. And in my head, the way that I typically separate my layers is something like contexts or maybe a different projects that like in, in a poncho app or something along those lines, an umbrella app. With something like Gleam or arguably even Rustler or other NIFs kind of things, you can have a, another kind of barrier there, <laughs> which is, you know, with Rustler and C, that's like going, going outside of the beam. You've set up that boundary now. But with, with Gleam, you, you brought up a, a really good point here. You don't have to give up the beam. You can stay within beam and still also you know, uh, communicate with uh, Gleam code, Elixir code. You, you don't have that hard boundary necessarily. But while you're programming, you have to shift your mental model, right? Because you're going from Gleam to Elixir. So you, you have these two areas here that are completely separated by, by language and not just, uh, and not just like an arbitrary API that somebody made up. Now it's, it's actually a different language. Now, that's a really interesting point, though. Earlier, I mentioned that Gleam is a really good citizen within the Beam ecosystem. And I didn't get into a ton of details there, but one of the really important points, I think, is that everything that Gleam offers over Erlang is implemented as uh, zero-cost abstractions. So what I mean by that is that the additional behavior and functionality and compile time checks that Gleam is providing to you are erased at compile time, and what you end up with is just normal Erlang. So all of the types and structures and so on that you're defining in Gleam after compilation just end up being maps and tuples and lists and records. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. It's, <laughs> it's the easiest FFI I've ever used for any programming environment ever. Uh, one of the things that ended up happening when I was writing this emulator is uh, I represented all of the domain modeling for the emulator using Gleam, using custom types and so on. And then those got compiled down to records in Erlang. As you may be aware, records are not the easiest to use in Elixir. But then it was simple with like a 15-line macro to just write a library that I published called Struckard, actually, that takes a Erlang header file and then auto-generates an Elixir struct with functions for decoding and encoding between the Elixir struct and the Erlang records 
along with transforming those records and so on, which now means that basically with two lines of code, I can interrupt with all of my Gleam structures from Elixir without even needing to know how the compiler is representing those types under the hood. So you're right, there's a boundary between two different layers here, or two different languages here. But in practice, it's not one that you even really need to think about because all of that translation is happening transparently by the compiler. Which is great. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> one of the things I learned here that I did not previously know about Gleam, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds a lot like the way someone might describe TypeScript, where TypeScript is a compile time. It does have a different language that you're introducing types. And it's a compile time check and enforcement of things, but it really just compiles down into JavaScript. And at runtime, it's just JavaScript. TypeScript isn't really part of it anymore. It sounds like that might be kind of how I might think about Gleam. Is that right? That's a really fair comparison to make. They both work in very similar ways. The main distinguishing factor between them, I think, comes down to the type systems of choice. TypeScript is doing what's called gradual typing which is essentially a way of layering a static type system onto a dynamically typed language that does not have one, while still attempting to provide soundness, guarantees, and so on, based on annotations that are provided by the programmer. That is an incredibly powerful model that allows you to eat a lot of type safety out of programs that otherwise wouldn't have it, but it's also a very different style of type system from something like Gleam's, Henley Milner, where you are able to uh, automatically get whole program type inference, for example, without any annotations by the user. Something like TypeScript that uses gradual types is able to eat a lot of type safety out of a program that otherwise wouldn't be able to provide it. But really, TypeScript is more similar to something like Dialyzer, I would say than something like Gleam, where you are actually starting from the ground up with an entirely type-checked language that can provide things like type inference. Thank you. That actually helps me understand it a lot more. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So this might be a good time to jump into kind of talking about your ElixirConf presentation and some of the things that you, you built. And I didn't have a chance to see this yet. So I'd love to hear anything you want to share. But like I did hear you were a guest on the Elixir Wizards podcast. Uh, maybe we can have a link to that in the show notes too. But uh, it sounded like you were building a game. Is that right? Kind of. I started out making a game actually because there's there's actually this quote I really love from a programming language researcher named Edwin Brady. He's the researcher who created the Idris programming language. And Idris is kind of interesting in that it isn't Turing complete. Instead, he wanted to come up with another way of describing how useful the language was. And he came up with the term Pac-Man complete because Idris is able to implement the game Pac-Man. So I was thinking about that quote, and I thought, oh, it'd be really cool to show that Gleam is a Pac-Man complete language. But then I realized that I could go one step further and make an emulator that could play Pac-Man along with every other classic game, so that Gleam would also be Tetris complete and Space Invaders complete and so on. What I did is I implemented an emulator for the Chip 8 programming language. It's a programming language from the 70s, and it is primarily used on the Cosmac VIP and Telmac microcomputers. It kind of vanished for a while, but then uh, 10 years later or so, it had a resurgence on graphing calculators when someone wrote an emulator for it. And uh, for a while, it was very popular for writing little video games that you could play on graphing calculators. Nowadays, it's more of a toy language that people use to experiment with emulator development and so on. So... At a high level, the programming language operates on a uh, stack-based virtual machine, 
It has 16 registers, 4 kilobytes of memory, and like a 64 by 32 pixel screen or something. So I wrote an emulator for that in Gleam, and then I connected that up to Phoenix Live View so that I could render it in a browser, play sounds, collect user input, and so on. Then I included ROMs for games like Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Tetris, etc. And basically exposed all of that on my website so that people could use Gleam to play all these different games and see that Gleam is actually useful for something. Really? Wow, that's really nice. I'm curious, um, with, with LiveView and with Gleam uh, and the Chip8 emulator, the, the rendering strategy that you had for... I, I assume there's a picture processing unit in this, but maybe it's all kind of one realm. Anyway, so with LiveView, are you rendering, rendering this like uh, in a table by, or a pixel by pixel and, and updating? How, how does that visual part render? So this is the biggest bottleneck by far in the project. Uh, overall, I think the project was a resounding success. But when it comes to updating a screen 60 times per second... As much as I love Live View, it isn't really the right tool for the job. I originally started by rendering a div for every pixel, and then changing its opacity based on whether that pixel was set on the screen. Mm -hmm. That worked okay, except, as you can imagine then, the rendering runtime is linear with the number of pixels that are being rendered. So uh, when I was playing games like Pac-Man, for example, where almost the entire screen is full, the game would run a lot more slowly. And then as you started eating the dots, the game would speed up. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't great. So uh, I later moved towards using a dynamically generated SVG for the rendering, which wasn't perfect. There's still a little bit of slowdown, but it gave me a lot more control over controlling which parts of the screen to render or combining them into larger blocks so that there's fewer elements to render and so on. And that led to a lot of speed ups there. One of the bigger problems, actually, though, was that because of the way Chip 8 renders things, it doesn't have uh, like a second frame buffer or anything like that. It's just directly blitting pixels to the screen. And what this means is that there's a brief moment before every sprite is drawn where it cleared the previous sprite and nothing is rendered. So there's a ton of flickering. On the old CRT monitors, this wasn't a problem because the pixels on the screen slowly decayed. So you ended up with like a really cool glowing phosphor effect. Not having that in uh, Live View looked honestly kind of terrible. So uh, <laughs> the next thing I did was represented pixels as a state machine, where they go from off to on to decaying, and then uh, just have like a little decay function that lowers their opacity until they drop below zero, and then they turn off. And that uh, gave the rendering this really cool effect where all the sprites had like a faint after image, kind of like in an old CRT screen, or if you're playing Fallout or something. And that cleared up a lot of the rendering issues I was noticing. Wow. And and so this this talk was really like a great example of what you had mentioned before about domain modeling and separating your business core and your presentation layer, you know, with Live View. And then on top of that, like a pretty cool thing with like Chip 8, like making it fun, uh, you know, at the end of it, which is really, it, it's always feels really good, you know, at the very end and 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 you get to see it. And in your case, like you get, you get to see a video game where you can give it input and move, you know, Pac-Man around. Yeah, it was enjoyable. Yeah. And I, I really do think it was a great fit for demoing Gleam's capabilities because like you just mentioned, I was leveraging Gleam for domain modeling there. So what it boiled down to was me coming up with 
a way of representing the emulator is a really pure domain model with no side effects. And obviously the way to do that is to have an emulator state that at each clock cycle fetches an instruction, executes it, modifies the state, and then returns. Then you all tie that together with a game loop, basically, that just keeps full of pulling instructions off. But where I took it one step further was making the car entirely pure. So it didn't handle user input or sounds or anything like that. And instead, any of those side effects, I reified as data structures that I returned from Gleam to LiveView, kind of like you would if you were writing an ELM application or using like the Haskell I.O. monad. And so what this ended up meaning is that my Gleam core is entirely portable and makes no assumptions about live view or what input devices are attached or anything like that. And instead, live view is just responsible for pulling these reified uh, side effects off of the emulator and then executing them in their own way. In the case of live view, that means using hooks to play sounds and keyboard uh, events to handle user input. But... And this is something I might still do, because I think it would only take an hour or two. With no changes to the Gleam code, I could also hook it up to a Scenic application and run it on my uh, Raspberry Pi. That's where I was going next. <laughs> I was going to ask you if there was a hook here for Scenic. <laughs> it's, it's something I had wanted to do for the talk, but given that I finished the talk a few hours before I gave it, I ran out of time. But I would still I really liar, love to. Huh? <laughs> I, I remade the talk like a dozen times in the last week. <laughs> the project was long done, but the slideshow I just kept redoing. <laughs> yeah, I would really love to go back and finish this project on Nerves with Scenic. I have run Gleam on Nerves. It works. It's honestly works almost exactly the same as running Gleam inside a Phoenix application does. And I think that would be a really cool demo of Gleam's capabilities. I think this is a really cool idea. And do you have a, a link where we could share where people could play this emulator on your website? Yeah, you can give it a try if you go to chip8.quinwilton.com. Nice. I know what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. So Quinn, you're probably a great person to talk to about this other this other bit of news that was just recently announced. I don't think it's re it's been released yet. But I've heard that there was another statically typed Beam language that was announced. And it was announced by the WhatsApp team at Facebook. I don't know the name of it, but I saw DevX a lot in the slide. So that's what, that's what I'll call it for now is DevX. Uh, have you heard anything about this? Do you know anything about it? How it differs from Gleam, maybe? What, what are your thoughts? I don't know anything about it that isn't public. I'm very excited to see it in action, though. Uh, I think I heard that they're planning to release it in November as a initial version. Honestly, though, there's not too much I can say about it, though, because public details have been very sparse. But I'm just generally very excited to see ideas like static typing growing in popularity within the Beam ecosystem. I don't even necessarily think that there being more statically typed languages within the community necessitates them being competitors. like. My thesis has been for most of this interview, Gleam really tries hard to play well with other Beam languages. Elixir does the same, and so do languages like LFE and Alpaca. Assuming this new language is taking the same philosophy and trying to just become a new front-end into the Beam ecosystem, like languages like Elixir have done, I think it's 
only going to benefit the community and provide us more ways of writing the really cool Beam applications that we've come to love. I'm also just really excited to see what approaches they are taking for doing things like typing distribution or message passing. I know that WhatsApp has probably some of the most ludicrous needs around when it comes to pulling performance and functionality out of the Beam VM. (laughs) So seeing what they have found useful for them from a statically typed language is uh, going to be incredibly valuable for all of us, I think, working on Gleam and on other Beam languages. That's insightful. Yeah. And, you know, judging by the name DevX, um, I think their their focus was a lot on developer experience. So just expanding DevX to developer experience, which implies to me that there's a lot of tooling around this that could support the developer experience, you know, on top of you know, not just being a static typed language, but using that in your editors, for example, they mentioned URL format, you know, as the formatter. I know that there, if I remember right, I think even the Elixir ecosystem survey mentioned that that was a weakness of, you know, the Elixir Erlang community is, is tooling, which has been getting better. I think a, a lot better, especially since Elixir LS came out. But now there's Erlang LS, there's Erl format, um, Elixir, a mix, you know, built in their their own formatter a year or so ago. So it's obviously been getting better. But the WhatsApp team, their Facebook, they think they think that we can make it even better. So I'm I'm very excited to see what comes out of this. And yes, I hope I hope you're right. I hope that they if if they uh, when they release this, that it, they're a good Beam citizen, you know, and and that we can we can all all benefit from any tooling that they do create about this. Maybe we can check in with you later, and and maybe we can get you know someone from WhatsApp to talk to us about DevX, whatever its real name is going to be. Yeah, for sure. I'm very excited to see it in action. One thing I think it does have going for it is that static typing really does give a lot more information to tooling to enable it to understand a program and how it works. One of the struggles with languages like Erlang is that so much of the behavior is left unspecified until runtime. And so pulling out introspection and metadata about what is happening isn't always possible at compile time. And I would imagine that some of the trade-offs that they've made in getting this language working have also enabled it to make more powerful inferences about how a program is going to behave once it actually runs. So one of the things I'd love to jump back to, like something you mentioned earlier, was the compatibility or good citizenship between these different Beam languages. And one of the things, like you talked about this idea of Gleam being a good fit for business logic and where you're isolating that stuff. I I know for myself, lots of times with the kind of applications I'm building, my business logic often involves like ecto schemas and data. So it's not purely without side effects. I was just curious mm-hmm. about how Gleam, uh, like what the developer experience is like when you're accessing something like Ecto schemas and performing queries and, and you're talking directly to what is otherwise Elixir code and types. Yeah, that's a great question. So while I've been talking about using Gleam as a pure statically typed language, Gleam isn't actually pure. It's able to perform all of the same operations that Erlang or Elixir can. It can send messages, it can make HTTP requests or connect to a database. Already, the Gleam ecosystem has libraries for interfacing with Postgres or HTTP clients and things like that. In some of the demonstrations I've been giving with Gleam, I have not been using those capabilities because I like programming as purely as possible. But 
those capabilities are there if you want them. That being said, it is always possible to structure your business logic if you want to in a way such that you are dealing with, at that core, really pure data models without side effects that kind of get unwrapped as you move outward towards the boundary of the system and actually handle things like persistence and so on. I participated in SpawnFest this past weekend and made a little a little game. I used Elixir, not Gleam, because most of my team did not know Gleam. But that's exactly the approach we took. We wrote all of our domain models as just pure Elixir structs. Actually, we used LG, uh, a witchcraft library that lets you do algebraic data types in Elixir. Then surrounding that, we had uh, gen servers and supervisors for handling in-memory persistence. And then surrounding that, we had persistence callbacks that you could pass into the functions to actually persist this data to the database as like a write-through cache type of thing. So that as far as you're concerned as an Elixir programmer, you're generally just working with pure Elixir data and not having to deal with any side effects. Everything's just transformations on that data and so on. But then uh, you kind of have this shell tying everything together that sticks things into the database and connects it with outside systems. And I think that's a model that you can use in any programming language. But something like Gleam with static types gives you a lot of capabilities in terms of modeling your domain such that various invariants and constraints are encoded at compile time into the program. And you're getting assurances that your code is being used in the ways you expect it to. Nice. Well, I do want to make sure we can also touch on this other topic, uh, which is dynamic analysis and talking about some of the more security aspects of your work. And I want to make sure we have time to cover that too. You know, it sounds like you've been working in the security space for most of your career. And that's an interesting place to be uh, just when you're working from that perspective, you know, because very typically as a developer, my goal is to make it work. And like a security style audit would be finding where I can make it break. And so I was just interested to hear your perspective on those kind of on how those two different mindsets are. I think I have a little bit of an interesting background here because I got my start with programming by hacking online games. Back when I was 10 years old or so, I was writing aimbots for shooters, bots for MMOs, basically just hacking any MMO I could find as my way of learning programming. And so my entire life, security was kind of the field that I gravitated towards. And software engineering kind of came later on as I realized that software is kind of fundamentally insecure and all of our attempts at making it secure are kind of floundering. So that's actually a lot of where my interest in things like static types comes from. Because when I am developing an application, I'm now unfortunately kind of cursed with this perspective where I just see all the ways in which it can be broken and attacked and destroyed by malicious actors. And so kind of the first thing in my mind whenever I'm working on something is how to prevent myself from making those mistakes that I know I'm capable of making. I'm not going to, through just sheer force of will, write perfect code. Nobody is going to. So then the next best thing is trying to find a way of enabling my computer to help me write as perfect code as I can. Types are one way of doing that. There's a lot of really interesting work going on right now in the academic world, actually, on doing things like even modeling information flow security using type systems, so that at compile time, you have guarantees that private information is not being disclosed in unprivileged contexts and things like that. 
basically type systems are able to represent far more than the sorts of guarantees people normally think about when they give examples like nullability or not being able to add a number to a string and so on. So that's kind of where my interest in type systems comes from. It's this background of knowing how software can break and how kind of of against our best efforts, we're not making much progress at preventing that. Then more specifically, where I have been spending a lot of my time professionally has been in writing tools that try to automatically break software. So I mentioned earlier dynamic analysis. That's basically a technique where you analyze a running system in order to look for security vulnerabilities, violations of best practices, correctness bugs, and so on. You have probably heard of Sobolo within the Elixir community. That's an example of a static analysis tool. Um, it analyzes an application at basically a source code level to look for vulnerabilities and characteristics that it expects might show up at runtime. What I'm doing kind of approaches things from the opposite direction, and rather than looking at the source code, I'm looking at a running application from a black box perspective and trying to instrument it and throw live requests against it or live user input and see how it behaves under actual realistic scenario to look for things like cross-site scripting or SQL injection or buffer overflows and that sort of thing. I suspect that that requires a lot of configuration then. It has to know about your running application, like it's a JSON, you know, JSON API or GraphQL API or just web forms, you know, what what types of forms it'll accept versus, you know, like a, a URL parameter kind of forms or posting, you know, that kind of stuff. It, does, does that, I guess that's the value that your company would bring then um, to the table is to make that process easier. But does dynamic analysis then require a lot of information about your app? It varies. The way that a lot of people have done it traditionally, it requires a lot of information. And usually people will ingest Selenium scripts or have you replay example user input through a proxy in order to teach the crawler or scanner or whatever how to interact with your application. Uh, I take a little bit of a, of a different approach, and instead I try to automatically infer that information at runtime. Uh, for example, if we're looking at a web application, we're going to spin up a cluster of Chrome browsers, we're going to crawl it, analyze all of the JavaScript events that we see being registered on the front end, hook into that JavaScript runtime, and look for all of the functionality that is exposed to the user try to trigger that functionality to look for new input vectors that appear like forms, query parameters, and so on, uh, and then use that to inform the fuzzing engine when we're actually looking for vulnerabilities. On the API side of things, though, which is where I've been spending most of my time lately, we take a little bit of a different approach, and we ingest API specifications. So for REST API, that can be Swagger, OpenAPI, etc. But where I have been having a lot of fun lately is actually with GraphQL. Because GraphQL provides schema introspection. And by default, every GraphQL API, unless you disable these capabilities, has an endpoint that allows you to query the types, fields, and constraints on those fields of the API. Basically, my tool is able to just, given a GraphQL endpoint, learn how that API works, and then construct a set of what I call representative queries that cover all of the functionality of that API in as few requests as possible so that I'm able to look for all of the ways in which that API deviates from that same specification that I have requested from that introspection API. 
And basically what ends up happening is you put in the URL of your GraphQL API and get thousands of auto-generated unit tests and security checks against it based on the information we pull out of your schema. It's very interesting. I, I can yeah, totally wow. see how GraphQL would be a great uh, opportunity for that self-discovery, you know, because like it's even listing, here are the mutations and the types that I take. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's APIs have historically been an area that dynamic analysis has really struggled with because until recently, if they were documented at all, it was likely that they were only documented in a human-readable format. But now that we have things like open API specification, for the first time ever, really, your typical API is uh, understandable by a program that is trying to analyze it in some way. That's pretty cool. So it can come across a, a certain input in GraphQL and it can say, oh, look at this. You have no constraints on it. Well, here's about a gig worth of uh, information coming your way. Let's see what happens. <laughs> exactly. Or it can look at those constraints and see, oh, hey, this is supposed to be an email address between 8 and 16 characters long. What if I put in a 7-character email address? Or what if I put in this thing that's not even an email address whatsoever? So speaking of all this work that you've been doing and like fuzzing and knowing your inputs, you know, like uh, on GraphQL inputs, like I've got, I'm curious at how tools like norm or property testing, you know, stream data, for example, has been to you, you know, in this case, in my head, this is at least stream data has always been test only kind of tools. But in your case, this sounds like really valuable tools for, you know, uh, just your program logic, your, your business logic. So, you know, what, what do you think about those those libraries? Do you have any recommendations of, you know, how, how to use this kind, um, this kind of data and, and norm? You know, what, what do you think about those? I'm glad you bring norm up, actually. I, I meant to mention it earlier and totally forgot, but I make a ton of use of norm in my day job uh, on both the dynamic analysis tools I mentioned and some other Phoenix apps I'm running. For those of you who don't know, Norm is basically a library written by Chris Keefley, I believe, that allows you to do contract-driven development in Elixir. So what that means is that when you specify your data types, you include specifications on those data types that uh, include what types each of the fields on the structs or maps are going to be, along with what constraints need to hold for them. This does a couple of really cool things for you. First off, it enables contract-driven development by allowing you to specify which specifications a function takes as input or returns as output. And then Norm will actually inject runtime assertions into your code that ensures that the inputs and outputs of your functions conform to those specifications. This is a really elegant idea, I think, that is able to bring you a lot of the benefits of static typing in a dynamically typed language, but while still being able to leverage things like let it crash and a lot of the expressivity wins that Elixir gives you. But what Norm also gives you that I think is very cool is the ability to use those specifications on your data types as generators for a property testing framework like stream data. Basically, in your business logic, once you define a data type along with those specifications, Norm will then generate a generator for you that is able to generate valid examples of that data type that you can make use of in tests to test for invariants and properties against that data type or on transformations that operate on that data type. That's the way that most people use Norm. 
but I have actually found a ton of value in making use of these generators in my regular development. I have uh, one service that I put together a couple of months ago that is a glorified GraphQL API, basically, that ties together information from a few different services and then aggregates that into one reporting dashboard that it exposes to the user. The application itself doesn't do too much because it's basically just aggregating data from a bunch of different sources. And typically that would lead to kind of a development nightmare because you would need all these different microservices running locally in order to develop against them and generate valid data and so on. So instead what I did is for each of these services that I was calling out to, I defined a protocol on Elixir and then I defined two implementations. There's one implementation that was basically just a GraphQL API client that would call out to the remote service decode the data, and return it over the GraphQL API for my new service. But then I also defined a mock service using norm and stream data that would use the specifications of the data types that I was already using for my real implementation in order to generate mock data and return it to my front end. And then I just generated pure business logic functions that operated on that data in order to essentially model those remote services in like 100 lines of code each. So what this meant is that anyone who's working on the service was able to develop against the entire cluster of microservices while only running that specific local service they were working against. And it would mock out valid calls against a model of those remote services that I implemented using norm and stream data. And then similarly, I was able to use the generators for those data types to define property tests against those protocols so that I could, uh, first off, test that my mock implementations conform to those properties, and then with just a configuration uh, flag, switch those implementations out for the remote implementations to confirm, the, to confirm that my real remote implementations also conformed to those same properties. And it turned what I think would have been a multi-month long project into something that we were able to finish in like three weeks. It was just kind of an insane speed of development because Norm was just doing so much work for us. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah I have uh, talked with Chris Keithley about this before. He actually, I think, presented on this in the 20, 2019? I think last year at ElixirConf. 2019 ElixirConf. And I think there's you can see uh, videos for that. Uh, but I think it's a, a very interesting idea. It's a different approach. And it's one that does have a lot of value in itself. I'm glad we were able to talk about that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Norm, and honestly, I think if I were to recommend that people programming Elixir learn any library in the community, it would probably be Norm. Even if you don't make use of it long-term, it really forces you to think about your domain model, think about what data you're working with and what transformations apply to that data, and really codify that in a way that honestly makes testing kind of a breeze. One of the biggest issues with property testing is that writing generators is difficult. There's a lot of tricks that you pick up along the way that make it easier to do. But something like Norm just lowers the barrier of entry to property testing to, honestly, a really accessible level, even to people who are very new to the idea. It's a, a good recommendation that people can take some time to check out. We've reached the end of our time. Thank you, Quinn, for coming and talking with us and sharing about the successes that you've had with your presentation, helping us understand more about Gleam and the potential that it has for just the Beam languages as a whole. 
And if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Right now, the best way to do that is probably my Twitter, which is Wilton underscore Quinn. All right. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.